Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe, I'm with Martin Spain, and in this show we discuss cars in films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode, we're going gumball. But first, a follow-on from last week's episode where we were talking about Gone in 60 Seconds in some detail, and that is one of the hero cars, one of the actual Eleanors from the film has been sold at auction for $852,000, which compared to the Steve McQueen Mustang, again, feels low for a hero car and high compared to that Mustang. I made my feelings clear on the Eleanor Mustang in last episode, so I feel like this is a lot of money, but I was totally off sync with everybody else when I talked about how much money I thought the McQueen Mustang was and I still feel 850 grand for this is just crazy money but if you are of a certain age and particularly if you are American or you love American muscle then the chance to own a genuine presumably screen used Eleanor Mustang is pretty tempting if you've got a spare 850 grand kicking around that you've got nothing better to do with why not it wouldn't be my (laughs) choice but hey you know if you've got the money and you want the car go for it True, true. Apparently, according to this article on Motorious... Oh, great name. It's a fantastic name. There were 11 hero cars made, of which three made it to the end of filming. I believe uh, Nick Cage was given one. Possibly Jerry Bruckheimer has another. So there might this might be the only remaining hero car that actually is in private hands. No, Nick Cage would have sold his. He, he had big money problems, um, which is oh, why he's true. done that massive succession of really terrible movies to get himself out <laughs> of his money problems. So I, if he had something worth selling, I imagine he sold it. Interesting, interesting. On an, on an interesting side note, actually, the original moulds used to create the Eleanor body kits were sold in the same auction for $20,000. So somebody, if they fancied a a screen-accurate replica, has actually probably got themselves a bit of a bargain. Yeah, if you've got an ordinary Mustang of a similar period and you wanted to put yours together, you could probably do it for less than eight hundred and fifty grand. <laughs> just saying. The interesting thing is that same car appears to have gone straight up for sale on a prop sale site called Section 9. It's called Section 9. And it's gone up for $1.5 million. What? That is an unbelievable turnaround. Someone is punchy with their pricing there. I don't think that's going to sell. 850 grand seems steep. 1.5 million? Yep. I don't get it. The, the film is not that beloved. I can see why the Bullet Mustang fetched many millions because the movie's beloved, the star that drove it is beloved. Yeah. Nicolas Cage, while a good actor and respected and fun in that movie, is no Steve McQueen. No. And also, as the Motorious article points out, you can buy an officially licensed replica for about $200,000. Now, obviously, there's replica versus hero car, but... Is it just that common that having a hero car that is kind of indistinguishable from a replica, unless you're buying it as an investment, in which case... Uh, mm. We're a bit back onto that territory I think we covered last episode with the um, the GT California replicas, but this is far more... If you can get a real authenticated replica effectively for 200 grand why not save yourself the remaining <laughs> 650,000 pounds and you know I'm yeah. buy a BMW 540i and get your mate to chase around in it <laughs> find an old abandoned shipyard go and race your mate push someone through a wall <laughs> interestingly while I was looking for details about Eleanor's and their replicas because that's what I tend to do on a Saturday night I found an interesting article on bestmoviecars.com about the very first car that is stolen in Gone in 60 Seconds which is the 996 Carrera the 996 Carrera called Tina because the first car stolen in the original film was also called Tina however that's not the interesting bit because while a 996 these days is what 12 grand, maybe? Yeah, they're the very basic, lowest-priced 911s around. Yeah. This car is actually a replica. They took a a 1978 911, stripped it down, 
recreated the bodywork from a 996 and got some Porsche parts, grafted those onto a 1978 car, and then jumped that. And when you look at the car in the photos, you kind of go... Actually, yeah, that doesn't quite sit right as a 996. It's all shot at night, but that's crazy. Think about that now. A 1978 911 is worth so much more than a ratty <laughs> 996. But this was sh- this came out in 2000 and presumably mm. was shot in 1999, which is when the 997 came out, or, or very close to when the 997 came out. So 996. Been, uh, sorry, when, when the 996 came out. So it would only have been a year or two old. There wouldn't have been enough time for them to make it to the used market. So you're presumably mm. talking about a difference of at least tens of thousands of dollars in the purchase price and conversion rather than just buying a new one outright. Well, apparently the reason for doing it was not money because let's be honest, Hollywood films are not short of a penny or two. But the reason that they did it as a stunt car was because the older cars were lighter than the newer ones. And crumpled better, so... You know, or not, as the case may be. Why would you use an older car that has worse safety systems, a worse chassis, is made out of tin foil? Mm. I don't get it. But presumably they're, they're going to say because it was lighter and could therefore be jumped better and suited the house brick nature of Kip's robbery technique. <laughs> that sort of thing, that sort of thing. Although this one, compared to what we've just been talking about with Eleanor, went for $38,500 at auction because... What you really want in your garage is a screen used 1978 911 that's been turned into a 996 replica. Like a Bogo 996 with orange lamps and the fried egg headlamps. It's not a good look. It's the opposite of a resto mod. It's it's rather than backdating it, they've forward dated it to arguably one of the worst looking 911s. Yeah, that's that's worse than just putting like the new lights from from the the next generation on car on your old model. That's a whole new level of crap. <laughs> it's it's bizarre. It's bizarre. However, moving on to somewhat more impressive things, if such a thing were imaginable, since we last recorded, Ford versus Ferrari had a big night at the Oscars winning for both Best Film Editing and Best Sound Editing. Which is a pretty good result for a a mid-budget movie about car racing. Two Oscars, it's got to be one of the first times a movie about cars has won any kind of Oscar. And it's really nice that it triumphed against really strong competition like the likes of 1917, Avengers Endgame, etc, etc. So I'm, I'm pretty stoked about this. I'm impressed that it made it through. It was in the running for Best Picture, but realistically it was at the bottom mm, of that no. list. So it was yeah. never going to win that, even though it might be among my picks for top five of the year i probably wouldn't give it best picture and i loved it i've got to say sound editing i think is well deserved because when i went to see it i had the full imax experience and it was absolutely visceral how they captured not only the sound of the cars but also all the ambient noise and what have you and if you're wondering because there's obviously a sound editing category, there's a sound mixing category, which uh, something else won. The difference is brilliantly explained by a Vanity Fair video, of all things, where they actually use Ford versus Ferrari as an example, so they can drop out certain tracks, they can highlight certain tracks, to the point that I think they spend three minutes or something talking about different sorts of shoes tapping on different floors when um, Henry Ford Jr. was walking through the factory. It's fascinating there's also a really interesting video sort of following on from the sound editing and mixing video which is a brilliant video it's some of the best explanations of the difference between the two that i've ever seen there's also a really fun video and there's a few more of these coming out now about the visual effects used in the movie and there's an awful lot of them to do things like track enhancement where where they're filming they did not have crowds obviously for safety reasons and you know you can't pay that many extra to turn up so there's a lot of (laughs) filling in crowd backgrounds there's an awful lot of adding in uh, digital advertising hoarding to save having to make massive billboards you just add them in post Uh, there's some real fascinatingly subtle work in replacing just elements of the background that you just wouldn't notice and it's that seamless invisible effects that i find most interesting about computer generated imagery in movies to be honest the flashy spaceships and aliens thing is not really my my bag (laughs) i love the stuff that 
you don't notice. I can remember watching um, Out of Sight by Steven Soderbergh and there's a scene in that with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez in a room and there's some big floor-to-ceiling windows and outside it's snowing and all that snow was put in there afterwards by CG and you wouldn't know but you take it away and the scene loses all its atmosphere <laughs> and just having that kind of just gentle enhancement it totally adds to the movie without taking you out of the picture and this is exactly the same there's loads of brilliant stuff so we'll see if I can find it and pop a link in the show notes to these little clips about how it's made because obviously I think these are all surfacing now it's won some Oscars and it's coming to Blu-ray not video as I said last time Uh, (laughs) it's coming out soon so we get a chance to see hopefully a bunch more making of and I'm hoping for a director's commentary from James Mangold as well so looking forward to that but yes very pleased it won a couple of Oscars I think that's a little bit of history definitely and one other thing that I will say on the VFX video was what I really liked is that they will show a clip and they will as it's progressing, they will overlay these extra layers. And what really impresses me and what you realise is the subtlety of the art is that, yes, there are some things which change hugely from from shot to shot when they add in a grandstand or something, but then you realise that a smoke effect is CG and you realise that they just tweak a bit of dust or they they warm it slightly or they cool it slightly or they just tweak the colours And it's really nice being able to see, as a shot's progressing, all these little bits of polish at the end. It's absolutely fascinating. It's the right word there is polish. It's that visual thing that that takes you from maybe not accepting an effect to accepting it. It's just Mm. the little bits of detail and the little, like you say, the polish and the flourishes really make Mm. the difference. One last thing while we're talking about hero cards before we move on. There's been a few articles, I think, this week in particular, because there has been a number of DB5s that have... Aston Martin DB5s that have gone into press hands for a bit of a, a bit of a press drive. However, Marty has made his thoughts on the DB5 excruciatingly clear I don't in like a it. previous episode. I, I would never have guessed, to be quite frank. <laughs> However, they've been letting journalists drive some of the stunt cars from No Time to Die, which are, if I remember correctly, a space frame chassis, carbon fibre or composite body panels replicating a DB5, and the engine and running gear from an undisclosed German manufacturer who make inline-six engines with variable valve timing, producing about 340 horsepower from 3.2 litres. That sounds funnily like an E46 M3 running gear. You know, it does, and it also sounds surprisingly like an E46 M3. And they're about, I think, a 1,000 kilos or 1,200 kilos or something. They sound brilliant. They do. This is the kind of thing you want to see sold on after a movie. Yeah. If if the if the hero Eleanor's are fetching 850k, I don't know how much a DB5 is going for at the moment on the classic market, but you can't imagine it's going to drive as well as one with E46 M3 running gear, curb weight of 1,200 kilos or so, and, you know, carbon bodywork <laughs> there's going to be a queue of well-heeled people wanting these cars now that filming is finished i oh. am certain of that they go sideways at the drop of a hat they sound brilliant presumably they've got modern stopping and starting gear yep so i i really like the look of these as a concept would i buy one no because a lot of it again is that look of the car and i'd far rather i mean let's assume these are going to be let's say 80 or 100 grand to buy one <laughs> i'd rather just get an m3 csl because i'm a philistine and i don't really care about the looks of the db5 true but there's a whole bunch of octane readers out there with <laughs> a bunch of money to burn who would probably go crazy for one except the e46 m3 might be a bit too modern for their tastes <laughs> i'm being mean about octane readers sorry if you read octane um i get it free at work because of reasons and <laughs> i've read a few and it just makes me feel really really ill-educated and poor <laughs> i can't even afford to look at the watch adverts let alone buy the products yes the first few adverts as you turn the pages just make it clear this is not a magazine for you poor person <laughs> anyway what i do like about the sound of these db 5s aside from the lightweight and the great engine and the limited slip diff and all the modern bits on it, is the fact that for the appearance, it's running narrow historic spec or historic look tyres. So 
if you take an M3 and kind of cut the tyres in half and give them a really high profile, that's going to be sort of fun and interesting because that's going to feel like a bloody rocket ship. Not only that, this reminds me very much of one of the first ever Chris Harris on Cars movies he did, (gasps) where he put those space savers on an C63 AMG. It's the same principle. It's that narrow tyre with a high sidewall goes sideways a lot. And this reminded me of nothing more than that kind of principle. Uh, So maybe they've been watching some YouTube videos. (laughs) Uh, Links to both that video, which I'm now going to have to find, and the... Piston Heads article, or one of the articles, probably several articles about... The Piston Heads one is really good. That's worth it a, worth a look. It is. Um, moving on now to motorsport. And we talked last summer about a film called Heroes that was coming out with Tom Christensen, Michelle Mouton, Mika Hakkinen, and the little Brazilian chap who didn't win the world championship. Felipe Massa. Felipe Massa. And, overshadowing it all, Michael Schumacher. I have taken out a subscription to Motorsport TV because God knows what this podcast needs is another subscription that we're kind of prompting people to get. So anyway, where was I? Yes, Heroes. It's a film commissioned by Motorsport TV, or the Motorsport Network. It is produced and directed by Manish Pandey, who did Senna. And it basically brings together the four people that I've already mentioned in a beautiful country house hotel, and the four of them talk about their careers. The way that it sold in the promotional material was that these four people have connections and they're all woven together. And they all weave together with Michael Schumacher as well because his career has touched all of these people and all this sort of thing. It was interesting in as much as all four of the people, and I'll get on to Michael Schumacher in a minute, have interesting stories of one form or another. It suffers slightly in that problem that we've already heard Felipe Massa's story because certainly Martin and I are avid F1 fans and we know how his career largely went. Yeah, we watched it and it's been told in any number of uh, Sky F1 features and and he's such an engaging guy anyway that he's been interviewed when he retired from F1 the first time and then he was interviewed again when he retired from F1 the second time. He's been on the excellent Beyond the Grid F1 podcast. His story's been told. And there's not really a lot there to to add to it. Tom Christensen's certainly was less well-known to me, although I know his Le Mans exploits. Mika Hakkinen has done that thing where he's really transformed since he left F1. He was famous for being quite monosyllabic. Whereas this, he opens up, he's engaging, he's a, he's a good watch. And because this is both a motorsport production and a Manish Pandey production... They've gone into the F1 archive, so they've got F1 footage and radio stuff that we haven't heard before. So Mika Hakkinen's Adelaide crash from 91, I think it was. But you actually see that from the circuit CCTV footage, which has never been aired before, I don't think. And my God, that's that's quite it's a It's probably going to be quite scary. It's an, I mean, it's a horrible accident. It was Professor Sid Watkins performed an emergency tracheotomy on him, didn't he? He did. Yeah, trackside. For me, though, the most interesting story of the whole thing was Michelle Mouton simply because it's the story that you've heard the least and because her journey through motorsport is the most different from all the others you know they all went through junior formula racing um they all went up you know tom christensen didn't go to f1 i think he had an f1 test but then went into sports cars and other things um obviously hackenden and massa we know but michelle mouton went into rallying the progression up the ladder is quite different. But also, I think that the Group B story still hasn't really been told in its entirety. There's still a lot of... um, There's a lot of the history of it that we don't know, and particularly the details. And having somebody like Michelle actually tell her story from her point of view, it really gives you an appreciation of what it was like in a small sport like rallying compared to F1 or or Le Mans uh, Audi's Le Mans entries but also quite how good she was she came within a gnat's whisker of being a world champion she was every bit as good as the male drivers she competed against there was she talks about doing the safari rally where she was leading the event by an hour and 20 minutes an hour and 20 minutes and had I think they had to replace her gearbox twice 
which caused her to sort of fall behind and, and she then had a crash and, and she didn't go on to win the championship that year. But what was really interesting as well with her perspective is that because she is a woman and because that she was doing this in the 80s, there was actually a quote, and I went and found this because I thought, I want to make sure I get this right. I don't want to just paraphrase it here, but I also want to make sure this is kind of a reputable quote. One of her competitors said, I can't accept being beaten by Michelle. This is not because I doubt her capabilities as a driver, but because she is a woman. Can you guess who said that? It's, an, it's a fellow driver who is racing one of her contemporaries. I'm hoping it's not Valterol. It was Valterol. Really? That's yes. very interesting and possibly slightly disappointing. Yes. Overall, the whole the whole story, basically each act, each course of, of this meal that they're having is how they got started, how they got their break, what was their sort of high point of their career, the big accidents they had, how they retired and so on. Which then leads to this point where Felipe Massa writes this letter, apparently, that says, I can't talk about this. And they all talk about Michael Schumacher and they all talk about what they were feeling when they found out the news about his his accident and so on. And this is the point where it kind of, it loses its structure a bit and it loses its way because it feels suddenly very forced. Like they've gone, instead of just these four people talking about their careers, which is interesting, we've got to weave in Michael Schumacher into this. And it suddenly goes into this very high-key, backlit, straight-to-camera monologue piece. The worst bit that I felt was that when they were talking about Michael, and particularly when they talked about his second career at Mercedes, they showed footage, and he looked relaxed, he looked happy, but there was no context, there was no right to reply, there was no involvement of them in his story. And even at the end, they sort of went through, you know, starring uh, Tom Christensen, eight-time Le Mans Lennon, or whatever it was, Michelle Mouton, you know, Felipe Massa, Michael Schumacher, hashtag keep fighting Michael. I'm like... Really, this it suddenly is, it's gone from being this really interesting piece to this Michael Schumacher tribute, and it feels like with Manish Pandey, you kind of go, frankly, I expected a bit more of you. Overall, I would say if you have the opportunity to watch this, do because there is some interesting stuff in there. It, it's high production values. There's some interesting footage you won't have seen before, and some interesting anecdotes. It's it is a well made, well constructed piece. It's. Some of this, some of it is a little bit OTT, but um, I'm happy, to, happy to, to put that to one side. If you sign up for Motorsport TV, you get a 48-hour hire of Heroes. And I've got to say, Motorsport TV, if you are into your motorsport, is actually a, quite a good service. There's iPad app, there's an iPhone app, there's uh, Apple TV. Because what it does is takes lots and lots of different forms of motorsport so if you want to watch the um what's it the toyota not toyota starlets like the toyota support series from the weather tech endurance championship it's on there and you can kind of build your own schedules there's cars there's bikes um some of the stuff you'll find on youtube so there's like vln for example or uh nurburgring endurance series so are they just kind of aggregating loads of live streams and and stuff some of it they are there are live streams that they're they're putting onto their platform some of it they're doing their own content in addition so bathurst for example they did their own content and had the live feed you get anywhere else they also seem to be showing things like WEC, which i watched recently despite the fact that in the uk it's like a bt sport thing so i don't know quite how they get around that but also what is interesting is because most sport network own duke who anyone of a certain age will have a row of vhs tapes all with duke as the publisher they've actually digitized a load of the duke archive so if you want to watch a retrospective on the Subaru Impreza, or you want to watch the sheffield motorbike trial from 2000 or you want <laughs> to watch specific both of those i know or, you've watched both of them yes or the 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 highlight video and i swear this is absolutely true of the 1988 Spa 24 Hours. This is the weird thing, though. They've got the Duke archive, and they've made it available. They've got, like, tons of historic Le Mans stuff on there. So if you want your Le Mans history, there is oodles of that. But they have selected 
they haven't just like done every year of a thing. They've kind of got a year here and a year here and this documentary and that Max Power thing. There's Max Power the movie on there. Oh my God, it's awful. We're going to come to that in a different episode because we also found out about another movie called 200 Mile Per Hour. Oh God, yes. Oh God. 200 Miles Per Hour, which I spotted in another issue of Octane magazine, actually, uh, <laughs> which is apparently one of the worst films ever made. So maybe we do a double bill and a, a review those. of awful. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, so Motorsport TV, if, you, if you're if you into your Motorsport, if you want it all in one place, if you want to be able to create your own little lists of series that you follow, if you want the more esoteric stuff, great. If you want the archive stuff, great. Dip into it for for a month. It's, I think, four ninety nine a month. Watch Heroes, see what you think, but it won't be for everyone. Um, speaking of Motorsport, on another streaming service that you also have to pay a subscription fee, a subscription fee for... <gasps> Drive to Survive Series in 2. Woo! Very excited about this. The the trailer for Drive to Survive Season 2 dropped, I guess, after we recorded the last pod. I have recently gone through all of Season 1 again, watching it with my wife, who didn't watch it with me the first time around, and we loved it. We kind of laughed a bit because it dates very quickly. Knowing oh, what's God. happened in 2019, watching a documentary series about 2018 gives you immense amounts of hindsight and the documentary constantly going on about how McLaren's last chance saloon and how brilliant Haas are and knowing that in 2019 McLaren are much much improved (laughs) and Haas are a bag of wank it's just brilliant watching that so I thoroughly enjoyed going back and revisiting season one the trailer for season two looks like more of the same but they have access to Ferrari and Mercedes and also they have screened two episodes of it at the premiere, um, and there was an Autosport article which goes through one of the exchanges. Was it at Silverstone? It's between- Silverstone where Haas had a bit of a nightmare race. Grosjean and Magnussen crashed into one another when Haas really needed them to not crash so that they could figure out why it was that their car kept going backwards in the races, which is not a thing you want from a car that should go forwards. The nature of the discussions that were had where apparently Gunter Seiner had a, a live mic but the cameras weren't on him basically telling the drivers to get lost in the strongest possible terms sounding like Gene Haas was considering pulling out of F1 altogether he was considering sacking both the drivers and it's just really unvarnished passionate authentic behind the scenes F1 and my god if there's one thing the sport needs more than anything else it's that right now and I cannot wait I tell you what did come to light watching it through for the second time is I feel like Gunther Steiner although everyone loves him for his sweary nature and his no bullshit tell it like it is I felt he came across as a bully you think? The second time round, where you think all he's doing is basically bullying Roman Grosjean until hopefully he crashes and dies or leaves. <laughs> I find it absolutely mind-boggling that they've kept both of their drivers. It feels like mm. they just lazily went, well, this is the easiest option we've got. But watching the progression of Grosjean through that year and thinking you would be so much better in a team where you weren't verbally abused by a loudmouth sweary man... If someone sat you down, put their arm around you and said, it's going to be fine, relax, you can drive, we want to keep you, instead of perpetually having jokes at your expense and swearing and abusing you in front of all of your colleagues. Now, I know that's a bit of a, uh, maybe an exaggeration, but it does come across that his management style is very blunt and very direct. And that is exactly what Kevin Magnussen wants and likes, because Kevin Magnussen is very blunt and very direct, and Roman Grosjean is not and would do way better in another team. I see what you mean. There are there are times when he is he is more supportive and he is more sort of the morale booster leading the team, but yeah, it it's You go back and watch it, and particularly if you watch it in, in, in one go and with the remove of a year away from, from that year, and you watch it and you see all of his words are we need to be he, he talks about how good Magnuson is he never talks about how good Grosjean is he bigs up Magnuson all the time he never mentions Grosjean I mean you can see why Grosjean's head would drop why he would need to seek help from a sports psychiatrist mm. 
psychologist. It's, I, I found it very hard watching it after a while because they follow that storyline hard through the whole of that series. They mm. focus in on Haas and Roman Grosjean a lot because there's a lot to go on and because they didn't have access to the top two teams. And so I, if, after a while, I just started hating Steiner every time he opened his <laughs> mouth and started just wishing he'd shut up and fuck off. <laughs> Fair and, point. and very much enjoying the fact that I knew what was coming next and that his team was going to have a shitty 2019 where they built a shit <laughs> car and got no points and fucked off right to the back of the grid. To put it in no uncertain terms. Yeah, I, I had a very strong reaction towards the end of that series, towards Gunsterstein's continual effing and blinding, because you don't get the sense in the series that he is under pressure because they don't talk to Gene Haas. You don't get to hear the side of people squeezing him. He just seems to spend all of his time putting the squeeze on his drivers, and in particular, Roman Grosjean. Interesting. That was Drive to Survive Season 2 coming very, very soon to Netflix, if not already out by the time you hear this podcast. But for this episode, we're going to move on from the magical world of motorsport to Gumball. Marty, where does it all begin? This all begins with a movie made in 1976 called The Gumball Rally. It's directed by an former stunt coordinator called Chuck Bale. It's probably the high point on his CV. He hasn't done a lot before or since to uh, to mark himself out as an outstanding director, but he has done this movie and it's kind of a seminal movie because it's it's the for, it's the progenitor of things like Cannibal Run, Cannibal 2 and so on and it does it better if I'm honest. I hadn't seen this for an extraordinarily long time and I went back and revisited it on a Blu-ray and it's actually really quite good. Like, really quite good. It stars a bunch of kind of fun character actors, Michael Sarazen, Tim McIntyre, Raul Julia, um, Norman Burton, Nicholas Pryor and also Gary Buses in it. Um, <laughs> That's about what it deserves. That's yes. about what Gary Busey deserves, yes. <laughs> it's it's sort of the genesis for all of these go from point A to point B as fast as possible movies they've made, like The Cannibal Run and then latterly, you know, Need for Speed. Um, interestingly, Fast and Furious have never done that kind of road race movie. They've never done a thing where you need to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. It's always about, about thieving things and family and, you know, thieving more things and more family. And then it's been about saving the world and drinking Corona and family. They've never done like an outright race. So they've not really mm. indulged in this. Need for Speed is probably the last one that we've seen. The plot of the Gumball Rally is very, very straightforward. The uh, the main character called Michael Bannon, played by Michael Sarazen, is a rich Wall Street businessman who is stuck in a meeting at the start of the movie, bored, thinks about driving his Shelby Cobra and then opens up this little safe full of gumballs, has one, picks up the phone and dials somebody and says the word gumball down the telephone. And that is the spark that kicks off the movie. And presumably he phones a load of other people and says, Gumball! And they immediately respond and like, yes, we're going racing. And they drop everything that they're doing. They drop everything. So there's, out and- yeah, there's college professors. There's all sorts. There's you know, well-heeled old businessmen. And they all gather in New York City to participate in this coast-to-coast race where they're aiming to get to the Queen Mary in Long Beach, California with only one rule. There are no rules. Also, do not talk about Fight Club. <laughs> they were 30 years early on that one. But uh, yes, the uh, the winner of the contest wins absolutely nothing. They get no glory, no headlines. But uh, to quote, they get a few hours flat out against the red line with no catalytic converter and no 55 mile an hour speed limit. And as I was watching these opening scenes, I was thinking, Dad, you just could not make this movie right now. You wouldn't be allowed to make this movie right now. You couldn't get the money for it. There wouldn't be the appetite from the studios to make it. This is a product of the 1970s. Mm. And before the fuel crisis hit and anything like that, it's it's kind of glorious in that way of knowing you're watching something that just could never happen. And much, you know, like we said, gone in 60 seconds, it would be dying for a remake this would be a brilliant remake but it just won't happen and one thing that i love about it you say that it's a product of its time when all the competitors meet for the first time it's in the middle of Times square in the back of a strip club or sex cinema or something and it's grimy and it's dirty and it's 
sleazy. Yeah, it's that 1970s feel that you got from the French Connection as well. Mm. And particularly when they when they leave the garage and you get the shots through New York, it's just so much of its time. Yeah, I, that's. I mean. There's so much to talk about this. It's, you know, like you say, there's some really interesting character actors and Gary Busey. The cars that are in it are just an exceptional slice of 70s petrol head Nirvana. You have a 1966 Shelby 427 Cobra, which is what the, the main characters, Michael Bannon and his mate, drive. There is a 1974 Ferrari Daytona Spider, which is real. Mm. Again, they're racing a real Ferrari Daytona. In fact, there's two used in the movie. I'm sure that uh, your friend of mine, Matthew Lange, will be along to tell me the chassis numbers of these cars. But as I understand it, there was a 1971 and then a 1974 car they used. I think the 1971 got wrote off. And then Oof. the 1974 car was used for the rest of the filming. And that one has subsequently been sold on into a collection. But yes, a real Daytona is used in this movie. They've got a 19. 19- 1974 Porsche 911 Targa. Which looks amazing. Yes, it does. There's a 1970 Camaro Z28. Uh, there's a Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow. There's a Jaguar XKE convertible, which won't start. So that is definitely real. Now, do you know why it won't start? Because it's a Jaguar from the 1970s. Because it's Lucas Electronics. No, no, no. The producers of the film went to Jaguar and said, we're making this film. Can you lend us a car? And Jaguar went, no, we want nothing to do with it. So they went, fine. <laughs> That's brilliant. We're going to put your car in and it's never going to leave the start line. This That reminds me of um, the Top Gear episode where they go to Romania and Bentley wouldn't give them a car in the last, at the last <laughs> minute. And so Clarkson just gets some Romanian shitbox and drives around and refers, it to the, refers to it as the Bentley Mulsanne, <laughs> which may be one of my favourite bits of subversive Top Gear schoolboy japery. <laughs> But yes, there's this list of fabulous cars and they are driven flat out. And by flat out, we don't want to talk about Hollywood flat out, which is sort of uh, about 75 to 100 miles an hour. No, these things are rinsed to within an inch of their life. There's that opening scene that Chris referenced where they are leaving New York at the start of the race. And this was filmed on a Sunday morning with closed roads. And these cars are blasting through the streets of New York wide open throttles revving for all they're worth they're bouncing over the junctions and there's a very very famous quote uh, where you see the Daytona fly past a pair of cops with the V12 wailing and one cop turns to the other and says it's going to be a nice day and (laughs) the sound of it and the sight of I mean I've never seen a Daytona Ferrari move that fast they're very expensive uh not the best cars to drive fast from what I hear. They can go quickly, but the brakes are of their time and the steering can be quite slow if it's not power-assisted and they weren't power-assisted in period. And so to see one driven really hard is just mind-blowing to see on film. And I love watching it. I've, Like I say, I've never seen one actually move that fast on film that isn't <laughs> you know, racing down the Mulsanne or something. It's just beautiful to see. And similarly with that, uh, the Shelby Cobra, that makes a completely different but equally glorious noise. And that thing's bouncing all over the shop. And there's some tracking shots where you see the driver and passenger in the car and their heads are above the windscreen line and their shoulders are so exposed. And you think, if that thing falls over, you guys are decapitated. <laughs> But it doesn't. And the next part, part, quite apart from the cars, is the driving in this. Like I say, these cars are being driven flat out, hard as you like. And from what I can find out, a lot of the driving in this movie was done by the actors because they just couldn't hide them. And it shows and it looks like they're having an absolute ball driving these cars flat out through New York, flat out on the interstate. And then there's a brilliant chase scene at the end in the LA River aqueduct between the Cobra and the Daytona where they're they're drifting it along wet portions of it they're spinning on muddy bits and there's a a shot which I actually have a still of on my desktop at the moment of the two of them blasting either side of like a, a bridge pier and they're just covered in muck and they're racing towards the camera and there's the spray coming up behind them and it's just it's petrol head glory in one frame this film is full of moments like that absolutely chock full of them the plot is kind of just standard but it's not um 
it doesn't feel quite so problematic as the films like The Cannibal Run that were just... They had very basic attitudes towards anyone who was foreign or anyone who was basically not an American good old boy. And you you just don't get that here. They're just in it for a laugh. And they're being pursued by a cop who's been trying to catch them for years. And you get that kind of semi-drama of it. But that, that doesn't really matter. And I kind of forgot about that as I was going along the movie, just marvelling at the joy of seeing all these cars that you just don't see out on the road being driven this hard anymore. And... I cannot recommend it highly enough. If you can get a copy of it, then really go back and visit it. As we've said on loads of these things, there is a, a degree of influence from Cetal Rendezvous for the way the, the some of the uh, filming is is done from the low end on the front of a car. Um, I imagine the, the some of the stuff with the Daytona may have been very slightly influenced by that too. But just... It's a joy of practical filmmaking. There is no way it could be done now. I don't think there would be any way they could have done it in the 80s. The kind of access they got, being able to close down bits of New York and bits of freeway and the LA aqueduct, just blows my mind to see. And it's beautiful. I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting this and I urge you all to do so too. I've I've just done some live research. I think actually... The Gumball Rally and Seti on Rendezvous actually came out in the same year. Oh, so they can't be influenced. So it is that kind of, well, this is how you want to make things look fast. A, drive them fast. B, film them from <laughs> low down. Well, apparently, the reason that they did the, the tracking shot was because the helicopter couldn't go fast enough. So Gone in 60 Seconds didn't lie. You can outrun <laughs> a helicopter. So yeah, so they mounted the camera on the front of the Cobra and the Daytona pegged it. The only thing that I didn't like about this, because you're absolutely right, there's so much that this gets right. And I I, I think that ever since I watched it, because I, I got this on a, a DVD flipper disc that was Cannibal Run 2 on one side, which is the reason why I bought it, and the Gumball Rally on the other, and who cares about that? I went back and watched it, and it has an authenticity to it. It has a love of its subject, which I don't think the Cannibal Run does. It is all about the cars, and particularly as well, given the stuff that we've had recently about uh, particularly the Apex Secret Race Across America, which had the footage of the Cannonball Run, it showed them in the garage, it showed them, you know, clocking out, going out through the garage and turning right. Yeah, those opening scenes in the garage have a, an air of authenticity that you you can't fake if you can see where it comes from and you can kind of see as i was watching this and we're coming to this with your review of the gumball 3000 movie mm. you can see where the modern day gumball 3000 is trying to ape this originality this genuine feeling with mixed success if i'm honest the only thing that really grated slightly about it was uh, the french guy on the motorbike because the, I knew you were going to say that. I just realised that I haven't actually mentioned it at all, and that's because I blanked it from my mind. <laughs> but the the interesting thing is that the guy who who was in the Apex film, who who did the Cannonball Run on a motorbike, seemed like an amazing guy who did this heroic thing, and yet in the film he's this slightly coked up Frenchman who just is a bit wide eyed and weird. Yes, he's called Lapchik the Mad Hungarian and he terrorises the country on a, ta- a Kawasaki motorcycle. And and in a nod to yours and my uh, mountain bike trials background, there is a moment at the start of the movie where he rides his bike over the top of a car. Yes. And it's really amusing watching like early 70s trials, skills and the lack thereof as the guy doing it has to put his foot down a couple of times. So he definitely didn't clean that section. <laughs> Very good. I have one favourite line from the whole film, because we do love a bit of dialogue. Can you guess what my favourite line is? No, see, I've already said mine, and mine's like the obvious one from the start of the movie, but just that that, that moment where the Daytona flashes past the cops, and oh, that, I, that's mine. What's yours? I can't guess it. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to murder it completely. It's the one where... Um, Franco Bertolini. Oh, no, no, I think I do know the one now. Yes, carry on. Where, where he rips off the rearview mirror of the Daytona. And it goes, 
And now, my friend, the first rule of Italian driving. Rips off the rearview mirror, throws it out the car. What's behind me is not important. Yes, okay, that is the other, probably the other famous line from it. And I, th- I think that mirror that he dropped on the floor probably worth a few thousand pounds now. Interestingly, the uh, the, the cars that came out of this, certainly the, the, the Ferrari Daytona, was sold at auction... Uh, with RM Auctions in Monterey for 1.65 million back oh, in wow. 2013. So I think that's the second car, the 1974 car. The 1971 car, its whereabouts are unknown, possibly because it got trashed and then maybe not repaired after the movie. But the 1974 car, I couldn't tell you the difference, but that's what you know, that's what I found out. That was sold um, by RM, and you can actually still find its page on the RM Sotheby's site with some beautiful photographs of it. But yeah, that, that was sold for 1.65 million back in 2013, and I, I mean, this, it's a genuine spider rather than the kind of uh, the fakes now, the way they chop the top off of a coupe. So I guess that makes it more valuable. I uh, don't know what the current going rate for a spider is, but that to me seems like better value for money than the uh, the 850k <laughs> for Nick Cage's Eleanor or even the 3.5 million for McQueen's mm. Mustang. Also, once owned by the voice of Warner Brothers, Mel Blanc. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the voice of Bugs Bunny. Uh, he had it for a while. Anyway, go and watch the Gumball Rally. It's really, really good. And in a seamless link, Chris is now <laughs> going to tell us about Gumball 3000, the movie. Yes. So the Gumball Rally did inspire Gumball 3000, the cavalcade of money and sports cars that has become famous and notorious over the past uh, long time actually it's been running sort of 12 or 13 years Since 19, 1999 yeah yeah i first became aware of got the gumball rally when jackass and oddly ruby wax for some unknown reason both did programs about the rally that they did i think it was the second one where they went london to stalingrad and and back or something like that um a couple of years after that for the 2003 rally they decided to create gumball 3000 the movie This was the gumball that went from uh, San Francisco to Miami and features a number of things that have gone into into folklore. The the 996 GT2 that's phenomenally fast. Uh, Potentially, in doing some research for this, maybe a prototype Koenigsegg, but certainly a very, very early one, which I think gave the mark a a reputation for reliability that it then had to work very, very hard to, to recover from. Um... If you are of the belief that Gumball 3000 is for moneyed bellends, this film is not going to change your mind. As a documentary, I think it actually has more merit than lots of the the, the, the event films that have followed it. It looks at a number of Gumballers. It is the first appearance of Alex Roy. It's the first appearance of Richard Rawlins before Gas Monkey Garage. It has a really interesting mix of cars. They're not all top-end supercars. There's Ferrari 360s and Lamborghinis. Uh, Richard Rollins is in a big sort of Chevy truck. Uh, There's an M3, a Z3, all sorts of stuff from across the spectrum, even an F50 that apparently got stone-chipped so much you could see the carbon fibre through the front paint. I love seeing that F50. Again, that's another car that you... I mean, I've I've seen an F50 once at DK Engineering. I've Mm. never seen one on the road. I've never seen one moving. So (laughs) to see that on film being absolutely rinsed was a joy and i you know they have only gone up in value since then so chances of seeing one blowing flames from its (laughs) exhaust on a track are pretty much zero these days very much so the the event i mean they obviously, obviously put a lot of money into this film so one of the stipulations with gumball is that you've got to submit any footage that you take you've got to send copies of to the gumball organization and some of the later films rely on that possibly a little bit too heavily this is well shot they've got helicopters they've got mini cams they've got jibs and all sorts of stuff it was all shot on video which kind of shows these days but super super saturated super colorful 
the cinematography is actually really good because one of the things that they do in this film, which again, they don't really do in the others, is they kind of get other people's perspectives. So they talk to the fans, they talk to the police. They talk to the passengers, I think, because it mm. opens with that brilliant monologue from yes. one of the passengers who is riding along in a car. The Viper. Who tells a what sounds like a very tall tale of being chased <laughs> by the police, but is undoubtedly true. Mm. And as an opening for a, a movie, it's really strong. It's about this five-minute tall tale that goes on and on about them you know, going down forest roads and hiding in a wood and having to pay people to to tell them when the cops had gone away the way it tells a story from multiple viewpoints is it's a brilliant touch to make it seem more accessible and spend a little less time with some of the bell ends there's not that many i'd say that the later movies are full of far more of the sort of rich wankers that we don't want to see there's entertaining characters here there's entertaining wankers in this one yeah, entertaining wankers. They managed to strike a really good balance between that. I'd say the only person who kind of pisses me off a bit is that annoying blonde girl who seems really annoyed that she got jailed for speeding in her Lambo. <laughs> yes. Maybe but- she's worked really hard for it. She doesn't look like it. She looks like she was given a bunch of money by Mummy and she's really <laughs> worried that Mummy will find out that she got jailed for speeding in her Lambo. Indeed, indeed. But the... So the film itself, as it goes through, it has really good uh, video editing. It has really good audio editing. The soundtrack is really good. I mean, the, the soundtrack CD, uh, Kids Ask Your Parents... In itself, it has that thing where it was like the Tarantino soundtracks where they'd mix in bits of dialogue and they'd mix in bits of whatever in amongst the the songs, but the songs are all, all really good as well. It also has a sense of the passage of time. It has a sense of not just one stage to the next stage to the next stage, but driving at night, driving during the day, driving over Hoover Dam, you know, the craziness at the start, the craziness at the finish, all this sort of thing. Um it also has people like Ryan Dunn who brings a personality to it really, really well. They've got people who are extravagant, shall we say. There are people who are, you know, more on the sort of nerdy car enthusiast end of things. And even the, they've got the Cuban brothers doing a lot of the sort of the presenting, quote unquote, who, you know, may not be to everybody's taste, but... I think this movie could use 30% less Cuban brothers. <laughs> I rewatched this quite recently and yeah, they they are amusing in small doses, but I think the the film focuses on them a little too much, but like you say there's it, this is a masterpiece of editing because I can imagine they had just miles of footage mm. and to cut it down to a coherent story and tell it with such beautiful visuals and give that, like you say, passage of time, journey from place to place. Everything seems more distinct. And they do check in with the various storylines they're following through the film. It's killer punch for me is the narration by Burt Reynolds. Oh, yes. There is just something about his tones that lend this an air of authenticity and gravitas that you can't get with anybody else. And I've got to say, whoever wrote his script did a really good job because, again, going back to Apex Secret Race Across America, I'd love to know what was put in front of Ice-T versus what he actually said. Because whoever wrote the script for Burt Reynolds, there's not a lot of of his voiceover, in effect. But what, what there is, is really effective. It sounds really authentic. It has a real atmosphere to it. And it's quite kind of breezy really and it it, it it does just add so much to the film and even there's there's one spot where one of the stops on on one of the legs was some oval in the middle of you know cousin fuck idaho <laughs> um but th- th- what they've done is they've put his narration with echo on it as though it's from the circuit pa which is this beautiful little touch. Um, speaking of, of, of on-track performance, so for those of you who aren't aware of the Cuban Brothers, they're actually a Scottish group who do various sort of appearances and shows and all this sort of thing. And there's a moment where one of the organisers takes one of the Cuban Brothers out in the F50 on track 
and he's obviously just jumped in because he hasn't got the moustache on, he hasn't got the, the full costume on. And the guy driving just goes in the F50. And you can see this poor guy like behind his sunglasses just like bracing himself like De Niro in Ronin. Just like, oh my God. And he has this very sort of, hey, we are, we are from Cuba. We are extravagant. Ha ha, aren't we funny? And the faster he goes, like it just becomes more and more Scottish as he's just forgetting the character. And he's just like, <laughs> oh God, oh God. I'm going to have to rewatch that bit now. When I when I watched it a few weeks ago, I didn't notice that bit, possibly because I was like, oh, it's the Cuban brothers going to tune this bit out now. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and check that out. I know exactly the piece you mean, but yes. That I- it's, it's really funny, but I, it, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a love story about a love letter to the Gumball 3000, it's absolutely there. It has enough celebrities. It has the enthusiasts. It has, you know, posh cars, cheap cars, interesting people but not crazy wacky people you know alex roy is kind of the extreme of the kind of we're sort of taking this quite seriously and we're sort of a bit out there but still with that front that kind of wacky absolutely front to it with the costumes and the crazy voice absolutely and it's very interesting watching it having read his book and knowing mm. his backstory and how he came to be in the gumball and hearing sort of his side of it all of that seems like a, a front and an act and yes when I first saw this, obviously his book wasn't out. I had no idea who he was. Mm. And so you think that is him. And of course, there was a legion of fans who just grew up thinking that is Alex Roy <laughs> and, and presumably are quite disappointed now that he doesn't go road racing every other weekend. <laughs> I actually went and watched the next couple of films or bits of the next couple of films. Um, I think 12 Days in France and the one that was all black and gold on the front. And what became quite obvious was that they were ce- they were following the celebrities a lot more. So the one that followed it was the first one with Rob Durdeck. Durdeck? Dideck? Yeah, the guy who... He's, was he the, his his security guys in an X5? Yeah. And the one after that was... Had Tony Hawk uh, driving the SRT10 SUV. But what, what you realise is that... Uh, particularly with, with sort of the one immediately after is that... It's the story of the individuals. It's not the story of the rally. It's not the story of the guy whose girlfriend breaks up with him because she he she thinks he's having an affair while he's doing this rally and partying with Hooter girls. It's just more and more the weirdos and the famous peoples. Yeah, they don't tell the story that I, I know... I or rather I bought the 12 days in France one and expecting basically Gumball 3000 again but with a new set of cars and people and a new journey and was very very disappointed and I think yeah. I've probably watched it once maybe twice and then gone nope not for me whereas I've revisited Gumball 3000 an awful lot because it just has an atmosphere and a vibe it's very specific to its time frame much like the original Gumball rally but it's really enjoyable. And again, you know, okay, I can't condone the high-speed nature of some of the driving on the freeways, but it is magnificent seeing Rob Kenworthy give his GT2 absolute death on the freeway, particularly amusing when a bunch of locals try and catch him up in in their tuned Japanese car and he's yelling across at them at 100 and something plus miles an hour saying, it's not a race, it's a rally, at which point he boots it and disappears off into the distance. That's really fun to watch in retrospect knowing that no one got hurt and you know the only damage was to people's wallets and nothing else there is a bunch of slightly irresponsible driving and there's an unsubstantiated rumor that that Koenigsegg driver got done for doing 240 miles an hour I think that might actually be 240 kilometers per hour he seemed to spend an awful lot of the movie actually fixing it so I didn't heard the rumour that it was a prototype. That would make a lot more sense given that I think the starter motor blew and he ended up having to buy a Volkswagen Polo just to get the starter motor from it because it was a Volkswagen part. He doesn't come off especially well, the guy with the, the Koenigsegg, if I'm honest. He seems a bit like a rich wanker, but I really enjoyed watching Rob Kenworthy drive the wheels off of his GT2. Whoever it is that owns the F50 is just an out-and-out hero for driving it that kind of distance. <laughs> you know, they've got ear defenders on. They're giving it absolute death. Like this, the high-speed stuff, there's some of it where you go, oh, that's a bit... But it's really interesting watching the start of Alex Roy's um, sort of 
coast to coast rallying career mm. where he's got the police scanners and he's got all the frequencies for the various states they're passing through and he's prepared and he's listening to other people get nicked while he takes a different <laughs> route that's really interesting to watch I, I really enjoy watching this movie for a different reason because it's a documentary rather than a, a fictional tale but it's it's worth going back to watch and see how they're trying to pay tribute to the original Gumball movie in their own way. Since this, I think it's just gone more and more down the celebrity fuckathon route where it's just <laughs> not as interesting to car nerds. Yes, there's flashy metal on there, but to be honest, you can kind of see flashy metal if you go and hang around Chelsea and Knightsbridge. Mm. You don't need to see the gumball to do that. And I think it's become increasingly more just a, you know, a circle jerk for those kinds of people who don't actually drive these cars properly. They just want to be seen to be driving them. <laughs> and one other thing that I did notice, if you want to watch these films, they're actually becoming a bit hard to get hold of. The most recent ones are up on iTunes, but a lot of them are only on DVD. A lot of them are now discontinued you can get um so you could have a uh, gumball 3000 dvd delivered to my house in two days time from amazon with there's one left in stock if anybody's listening to this podcast and you want to go and buy that one copy that amazon's got left let us know and we'll watch it disappear from that person's stock list <laughs> uh £4.18 will get you get you that dvd and frankly it's worth £4.18 of your time. It is. And, and if, money. If you want to buy the audio, audio CD as well, I would re- well recommend it. And I think it's just a really nice time capsule. Yeah. I think both of these two, both Gumball Rally and Gumball 3000 the movie, are underappreciated. They are great car films of canon. And yeah, I, I think we would both strongly recommend, if you haven't seen either of them, this is probably one episode where we'll give both of them two hearty thumbs up yeah both thumbs up from both of these although if you had to pick one i'd say watch the gumball rally yes Uh, and if you want to watch them both watch the gumball rally first yes actually here's a question i know you you've you've already talked about it and thought about it with secret race across america if you were going to enter the gumball and you had i don't know 100 grand what car would you enter in Ah, you know you're right i did think about this after watching it and i think if i were going to do it and i'd want to be sort of semi-true to both what I enjoy and the 70s movie. I want something that's going to sound good. So yep. ordinarily, 100 grand, I'd go uh, McLaren 12C because <laughs> I'm a McLaren fanboy. I'm not going to go for E39 M5 because that's Alex Roy's cross-country car of choice. Uh, if I wanted to not be seen, I'd pick a, you know the, the standard Mercedes-AMG of some sort, yep. preferably D-badged, preferably in silver. But <laughs> for me... I want something that's going to sound good rung out. I'm going to pick a Porsche 991 GT3. Nice. I thought you were going to say V12 Vantage. I could be tempted by V12 Vantage. Chris and I were talking about this earlier on, and my love of the V12 Vantage is strong. But I I was thinking of just that, the moment where you're allowed to give it full reign as you get to the city limits. I just want to go all the way up to 9,000 RPM. That's what I want. Um, see, I was thinking, if you're going to do a proper coast-to-coast, given that it can be rain, it can be all sorts of conditions, a 911 Turbo S, possibly with a bit of a tune on it, so not not going full GT2, but going 911 Turbo, maybe it's like a Brabus. I think Kim Schmitz always used to run Brabus. Brabus Mercedes, yeah. Or if you were going with something really flamboyant or if something quite kind of out there but fun for a hundred grand. Do you get a Morgan Aero, Aero Max for you that could, kind of money? You could. That'd be an interesting one. Or there are three in the world Bowler EXRSs, the road ones they did. So it's a two-seater Dakar truck with the Jaguar 5-litre supercharged engine in it which I think would be quite a hilarious thing to drive across country. If nothing else, the ride would be brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> good luck fixing that when it goes wrong at the side <laughs> of the road in America where they've never heard of your bowler. What's a bowler? I thought that was a kind of hat. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's quickly power through our YouTubes because we've run quite long on this. So for me, I did have the 
video from the Nissan UK channel of, I'm going to mispronounce this, I apologise in advance, uh, Mauro Callow's GTR. So basically he's got a GTR and he's had it modified so it can turn into a camera rig. So it's like got matte black wrap on it. He can mount a camera on the front, he can mount a camera on the back and he can go chuffing quickly with a gimbal mounted on the on wherever it needs to be mounted and the video that they've actually got is him doing the chase car driving shooting a video for nissan of the new gtr nismo this is brilliant this is full-on exhibit memes yo dog i heard you like (laughs) nissans so i put a nissan in your nissan so that you can nissan while you nissan (laughs) it really is it's just nissan's filming nissan's going like for nissan and yeah it's great just to watch because it's got that footage that i like um and we tweeted a, a zinger video recently as well where you get a gimbal mounted on a chase uh, car and it's just bouncing this way and that. And I mean, that's a guy who knows how to drive going chuffing quickly. It's well worth a watch, but he's been usurped today by our semi-regular feature. What has Henry Catchpole released this week? Because Henry has revisited the reimagined singer and singer with an S, not a CZ (laughs) singer with an S up in the hills of California, I think. And it has all those things that we know and love from Henry Catchpole car affection videos. Sideburns, plaid shirts. Glasses, brilliant writing. Henry has a a great way of writing and delivering. The cinematography is really good. It really has so many angles and it cuts and changes, but without being ostentatious beautifully lit beautifully shot basically from about 40 seconds in i started going oh yeah what is my perfect singer again it's this color and it's this engine and (laughs) and a dls and 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 yeah it does that thing where you know it is the auto movie test i as soon as i started watching it i wanted a singer because it's just a great video celebrating singers I haven't seen this yet. I, it popped up in my feed at lunchtime and I've had a really busy day and haven't had a chance to sit down and give it the time it deserves. So I'm going to try and uh, catch up with it tomorrow. But I am I have no doubt that it's going to be another catchball classic. Definitely, definitely. What's your pick for this week? Uh, my pick for this week is actually a podcast that is also a YouTube video. So this is Matt Farah's Smoking Tire podcast, and it's the episode with Fielding Shredder, the drifter <laughs> with the best name in drifting. Um, you may recognize his name from Netflix's Hyperdrive um, car series that we talked about in some earlier episodes of the Automovie podcast. He's on, I think, not the latest couple of episodes, but a few episodes back. I think it was just before Christmas. He's a really great interviewee. He he talks at length about his background in cars, how he came to be on Hyperdrive. He offers a bunch of really interesting background information on shooting the uh, the show and how difficult it was. He works four jobs to support his career in motorsport. I mean, he's he's a really, really interesting listen, a really interesting mm. interview and a smart guy. And I really wish him all the best with future projects. And I will kind of be following his Instagram and his other channels more closely because of how um, engaging he was on Matt Farah's channel. So definitely check out the uh, Smoking Tire podcast with Fielding Shredder. Still can't believe it's his real name. (laughs) Uh, Well, that is it for today's episode. If you agree with us about the gumball, then please feel free to tell us and congratulate us. If you disagree, then please feel free to respond to us on Twitter, telling us what morons we are and how Arthur from Gumball 3000 is an absolute genius. Um, (laughs) You can get in touch with all the usual methods. Until next time, we are off to go and drive a Daytona at high speed down the streets of New York and hope that the cops don't chase us. 